in the confession of faith that we have. And as we've been talking about, we have been spending a lot of time going through Jesus Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. And just to repeat some things to us, we have seen that God reveals Himself in Scripture to be a covenanting God. That is, our God delights in showing His faithfulness to fulfill sworn promises that He gives to His people. That all of our salvation is built upon the fact that God promises to do something and He brings about that promise. And, in particular... In our chapter, He sent Jesus Christ to be the perfect mediator. We've seen His nature as God and man joined together. That that must be for us to have salvation. We've seen what He's accomplished for us. And today, we're going to consider Him as prophet, priest, and king. And I want us to notice in paragraph 8, even though it's not explicit, try to pick up the things Jesus does... And which one of these actions that I'm going to read applied to him as a prophet, a priest, and a king? To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his Spirit, revealing to them in and by the Word the mystery of salvation, persuading them, notice that language, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by His Word and Spirit and overcoming all their enemies by His almighty power and wisdom. In such manner and ways are not, are most consonant rather, to His wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. Paragraph 9. This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or in any part thereof transferred from from him to any other. Paragraph 10, the number and order of offices is necessary. This is interesting. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly offices to reconcile us and to present us acceptable unto God. And in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Okay? The point of our confession is that Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator and that he fulfills all of the Old Testament types and shadows about the kind of mediator that we need. Okay? So, when we think about Christ being our mediator and these three offices, a lot of this is going to be review for us, but hopefully helpful. He is the anointed one. That is uh, Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek. And where do we... What, is, what do those two words mean? What does Messiah or Christ mean? Anointed one. Okay? 
So in, in both of these languages, Messiah and Christ means one who is anointed. That is properly to have oil poured out upon him. But this pouring out of oil on a prophet, a priest, or a king, it's symbolic of something, right? It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit being given to perform a certain task. And we might see this in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Notice, this is what was read in Luke 4 as Jesus stood in the synagogue and opened the scroll. He opened up Isaiah 61 and read to the synagogue, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. We see here that Jesus is anointed by God and that is more fully explained as the Holy Spirit is given to Him. And as we know from John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is given to Jesus Christ without measure. And so, He is the perfect anointed person. He is the Christ. And as we've already said, there's three categories of people in the Old Testament that are anointed with oil. And we've already shown it, right? Prophet, priest, and king. Where do we see prophets anointed? Where do we see prophets anointed? What's that? David was certainly anointed. Now, David is a king and a prophet, isn't he? We see in Acts chapter 2, for instance, that when Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost, he said David was a prophet, and he was prophesying in Psalm 16 about Christ. Where else do we see prophets being anointed? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. And this is the hardest one that we have. We certainly have David as an example. But also, I'm just going to read this. 1 Kings 19.16 says this, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Moholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in his place. Okay, so we have prophets anointed by God. Where do we see... Priests anointed by God. It's much easier. Yeah. So Leviticus 8 through 10. We have high priests and the regular priests being anointed. You had to be anointed into the service of being a priest. So we have two offices that are clearly anointed. What about the kings? David, we, we see multiple kings being anointed. We see Saul, David, Solomon. We see we see anointing happen to kings overall. And so just to give a little bit of Old Testament background, when we think of the anointed one, our mind should go to these similar Hebrew words in the Old Testament that show us there's three offices. And when Jesus Christ comes to us, He is not just a continuance of these earthly 
anointed people, He is the fulfillment of it as the preeminent prophet, priest, and king that everything pointed to. The Old Testament gave mediators to the people. But they were all imperfect and partial mediators. But in Christ, all of these offices are put together. What theologians sometimes call the munis triplex. This trifold office of mediator. Where do we see Christ in His prophet, priest, and king roles put together in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 1. And we've gone here before, but this is burned into our minds because it can go so far that we can say, well, we can do biblical and systematic theology and say, okay, there is anointed things and Christ is the anointed one and therefore He's prophet, priest, and king. And that's good. But we have pretty clear New Testament witness that this is how the authors of the New Testament looked at this. Hebrews chapter 1, while it doesn't use the words I'm using... I want us to notice that very clearly all of these ideas are put together. Long ago, in verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. He is a prophet, whom He appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. If that doesn't communicate that He's not only a prophet, but a king, that He's ascended on high, sits on the throne of His Father, and upholds everything, I don't know what else it communicates. And then notice, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Oh, I'm sorry. After making... Purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is excellent than theirs, that he is a priest. He is sacrificed for the purification of sins. So we see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And what I want to spend the majority of our time here today on is why that's important. So, the question that should come to our mind, if Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, why did God choose to have a mediator that has those three offices in particular? It's because of our need. It's because of our need. That there are specific needs that we have met as fallen sinners that can only be accomplished through these offices. And we start first with the office of prophet. A prophet is one who mediates between God and man by speaking to sinners and man God's will for us, right? He teaches us what God would have us to know specifically for our own salvation. Now, what need does that highlight in us? Why do we need a prophet? Yes, brother. Yes, that's right. One word we could say, we're ignorant. We do not know God because of our own sin. We do not know God. We are ignorant 
of God's will. And we've been blinded by sin. And therefore, we need a mediator to come and tell us who God really is. Even if you would just give me a book with no prophet, nobody preaching, nothing like that, I would, and we do, so twist the words that we need somebody to come and clearly tell us these things. Nature is not sufficient for us to to gain a right view of who God is because of our natural sinfulness. We have an ignorance of God's will. What, What passages can we think of that show that naturally, before conversion, we have ignorance of God and we need somebody to tell us who God is? I, I'm sure it's in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13? That could be. I'm not, I'm not picking up what you're thinking, maybe. Oh, sure. Sure. And, and this is all over the place. But we see, maybe most clearly in my mind right now, is Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 we see in verse 13, the wonderful promise, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching. I just want us to notice in this text, while this is a wonderful text for evangelism and missions, it says something about the human status, doesn't it? That we are unable to come to know God without this prophetic office. And so Christ fulfills this prophetic office. And please turn with me to Ephesians. This is one of my favorite passages on this. Ephesians. Chapter 2. Notice how Paul speaks about these Gentiles who come to know God. Says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. These are people, we are people who are alien from God, ignorant of God's will, and Christ comes and preaches peace to us. And notice that he's writing to a group of people that never saw Christ earthly walking in his ministry. But when the Apostle Paul came, when a preacher came and preached to them the gospel, Christ came. And preach the gospel. He exercises his prophetic office every time the gospel is shared with somebody. It is Christ preaching through him. And then we could also think of John 1.18 that says, No one has God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Right? Who has made him known? Jesus Christ with God the Father, came to this earth in part to make God known to us. He makes Him known. He is a prophet. We're ignorant. And Christ fulfills that by teaching us the Gospel. What we must do to be saved, this is necessary. But He is also our priest. He's our priest. 
What need do we have that is fulfilled by a priest? Maybe we'll ask another question. What, what does a priest do? How does a priest mediate? What's that? He atones for the sins of the people, right? A, a priest offers up an oblation and a sacrifice and also intercedes by prayer, right? They, the, um, the sins are atoned for and covered by the blood of the animal and then the prayer is that the, the sacrifice would be applied to the people, that the benefits would be applied to the people. So how does that highlight a need that we have as sinners? A prophet is ignorance, highlights our ignorance. A priest highlights our alienation. Oh, yeah. Our, our alienation from God. That we are separate. We're enemies of God. We're hostile to Him. We're two parties that are totally opposed to one another. Where do we get language like this? In the Old or New Testament, that sinners naturally are alienated from God. Brother. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is a great text. Notice at the very beginning of Ephesians 2. This is extremely strong language, isn't it? Um, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all... Notice that. Paul doesn't just think that there's some who walk according to this rule, and there's others who naturally don't. He says, we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. By nature, children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. When God looks upon us naturally, without the Holy Spirit saving us and making us into new people, there's no difference in the world. All are children of wrath. All are just by nature like the rest of mankind. And therefore, we need this alienation to be broken. We need this alienation to be broken. Um, We see that Jesus Christ has prophesied to come and be the perfect priest. What what made the Old Testament priests imperfect? Yes. Yes. So, first, they died. They were temporal. There there was not a priesthood that could, could continue on forever. Second... They were sinners. They needed to offer up sin for themselves and also for the people. But this is not the case with Jesus Christ. In Psalm 110, it's prophesied of Him that the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus Christ would come and fulfill that office. In fact, that same passage is quoted no less than four places in the book of Hebrews to show that the priestly office belongs to Jesus Christ. So, as high priest, Jesus takes away the alienation that we have with God. And the two texts I would have you turn to are both in the book of Hebrews. 
book of Hebrews. And it's so important for us to have these, I think, simple, easy-to-remember categories in our mind that the priest takes away our alienation through two works. Again, it's sacrifice and intercession. And we'll look at both of those. First, sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 11 through 12, we see Jesus engaging in this priestly work of taking away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. Notice what it says in verse 11 of Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. No doubt you've heard this before. Priests never sat down because the work was never finished. These, this blood of bulls and goats could never effectually take away sin. And in the Old Testament, when you saw the priest at his toilsome work that happened day after day, hour after hour, you were to be reminded of something that the blood of these animals just can't take away sins. The work is never done. It's never effectual. But Jesus, when He sacrificed Himself, the first act He did in heaven was He sat down at the right hand of God. When He cried out on the cross, it is finished, it meant that He accomplished the total taking upon Himself the sacrifice for sins for all of His people for all time. But his work as priest continues at this moment. So if you think with me, we saw in Christ's prophetic office, he preached while he was on this earth and made God known. He gave the gospel to the apostles who were to write the New Testament. But Ephesians 2 and Acts 26 as well tell us that Christ's prophetic office continues to this day through the preaching of the gospel through human ministers. His priestly office continues to this day. Hebrews chapter 7. And we could turn to other places as well, Romans chapter 8. But Hebrews chapter 7 says this. Uh, We'll start in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the surety of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But notice this. But He, Christ, holds this priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Christ always lives for a purpose. And that's to make intercession for His people. And we've pointed this out many times, but Jesus purchased all of the benefits of redemption on the cross. His sacrifice and His perfect life purchased it for us, but it's not applied to us at the moment of the cross. There's several, and I think I would use the term, heresies that have developed in the Christian church, false teachings that that the elect are eternally justified. Because Christ's work on the cross was so wonderful, and because we've been elect, eternally we've been justified. That's not what the Scripture teaches us. It teaches us that in a moment of time, the benefits of salvation are applied to us. And that's through the prayers of Jesus Christ. That He says, I have offered sacrifice just like that high priest would. You brought your bull to the altar. 
It was sacrifice. And the high priest would take that blood, throw it on the altar, and pray for you. That you would see Christ in the sacrifice. That you would be saved by the true Lamb of God that was to come. But Christ takes His blood, so to speak, into heaven and prays for us that we would receive the benefits of salvation. That we would be saved in a moment of time, come to faith. That we would persevere in the faith. That we would bear fruit. This comes from Jesus Christ's prayers for us. He is able, notice, to save to the uttermost all who come to God through Him. That language that the priest, you might remember, on his breastplate, on his shoulder pads, he had something written. Does anybody know what he had written? The 12 tribes of Israel. There was a specific group of people that the high priest would enter into the holy place and he would intercede for those people whom he made sacrifice for. Jesus Christ has the names of all of his elect written, and as Isaiah says, inscribed on the palms of his hands. He doesn't forget his people. He prays for us. And it's through those prayers and his sacrifice that the alienation that we have with God is taken away and we are united with him again. The veil of the temple was rent in two, and that symbolized two things. First, God was leaving the physical temple because the people of God had broken his covenant. But we now can enter in through the torn flesh of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we confess Jesus Christ as our anointed king. So we have ignorance. That's why we need the prophetic office. We're ignorant of God. We're alienated from God. That's why we need the priestly office. Why do we need the kingly office? Brother. Because you're weak. That's right. You're unable. Our inability. Our inability. Now, we're unable in a lot of ways. Internally, we're unable. How are we internally unable? Sense of the mind, sense of the heart. We're inclined to lawlessness. A king rules over a kingdom, brings order and law. We are inclined to lawlessness in our hearts. We can't subdue our own hearts, can we? We can't subdue ourselves. We're so sinful that we hear the good news of the gospel in our natural state, and I can't subdue my own heart and come to Christ on my own. He must come as king and subdue my heart. He has to subdue my heart. What about externally? Why do we need a king? We have problems internally. He needs to subdue us to come to him. He also needs to subdue us in our daily Christian lives. He subdues us. That's what he does as a king. What about externally? Why do we need a king? That's right. That's right. So in a natural sense, we need a king, we need a government, we need a president. Not just to contain the sins of the nation itself, but also to protect us. Excuse me. From enemies that are foreign to us. They might want to come in and destroy us. We need a a government to do that. We need a king to protect us. We're promised that in this world we will have persecution. We're promised in this world the world will be against us. And that would be overwhelming for us if it weren't for the reality that we have a king in heaven who protects us from our enemies. Now, not completely in a physical sense, but spiritually, we are protected 
by our king. Can we think of any text for that? We're protected externally by our king. Psalm 23. Sure, yes. It's a wonderful text. And these texts are all over the Bible. Whenever you have mention of enemies and God promising to preserve us from the power of our enemies, this is what we see. Psalm 23, we have the wonderful language in verses 5 through 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Notice the enemies aren't taken away, but God, in the midst of our persecution, He prepares a table for us. He takes care of us. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How about the New Testament? Do we have any language we can think of that Christ protects us from external enemies. Romans 8. Romans 8. Yeah, amen. Amen. And again, if we have this in mind, we can see this everywhere. Now, just because He protects us, it doesn't mean that that protection looks how we want it to look all the time. Okay? But notice... Who shall separate us, in verse 35, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And if we stop there, we might say, it doesn't seem like we have a king that's protecting us. It seems like... Like Jerusalem, when the walls were torn down, all the enemies come in and there's nobody to protect us. But notice verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil is not content that we would be physically persecuted. He desires to devour us and separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that is impossible because Christ is our king. He rules over all of these things. And I want us to notice the language of the confession. Even though we haven't gone to a lot of it, we've gone through this. That there's three sets of language with regard to Christ. Notice at the very end of paragraph 10. It says, we need his kingly office. Notice these first three are to bring us to salvation. To convince, subdue, and draw. That's what Christ does before our salvation. But the next three are after our salvation. To uphold, to deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Christ preserves us. Now... We have limited time. So, um, this middle paragraph. Well, I'll just quickly mention paragraph 10. Notice how it says, order of the offices are necessary. It's saying that in order of things, in our salvation, we first need to be convinced by His prophetic office to come to Him. 
In His priestly office, we must be convinced that He has obtained redemption for us. And in His kingly office, again, preserves, protects us, and brings us in. Now, paragraph 9 tells us that this office of mediator can't be transferred anywhere else. That Christ alone is the mediator of the people of God. Now, this is, no doubt, directly against the Roman Catholic Church. And specifically, the Pope. And I I just wanted to read this briefly, and we'll take questions and end. This is in 1592. A quote from Andrew Willett, who is an Anglican. He says... And everything we've gone over, Christ is prophet, priest, and king. This is what Andrew Willett wrote of the Pope in particular. So the Pope denies Christ to be prophet, priest, and king. His prophetic office he defaces and in effect denies by disgracing the Scriptures, saying they are imperfect and contain not all matters necessary to salvation and that their authority binds not with his allowance. That is, the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church says, there must be additional revelation. The church gives canons and laws, and therefore, the prophetic office of Christ, which is seen in the Holy Scripture, is seen as insufficient. His kingly office, in making himself, the Pope, Christ's vicar and vice-regent upon the earth, in making, notice this, new laws, sacraments, and ordinances besides Christ. The Pope takes it upon himself to make new laws, ex cathedra, which Christians have to observe. The not eating of meat and lent. New sacraments, seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. The celibacy of the priesthood. These are new laws not found in Scripture. And he says that's defying the kingly office. He's setting himself up as king of the church, making laws that Christ did not make. His priesthood in setting up a new propitiatory sacrifice, this is his language, in the abominable mass, beside the one sacrifice of atonement on the cross. Now, that might sound strong, but it's very clear in the Roman Catholic doctrine that in the mass, the priest has the power to call Christ down, and that when we break the bread and take the cup, he is newly sacrificed for us. This is very unchristian, unbiblical language. We have just read that Christ was sacrificed once and sat down at the right hand of God. He is not continually sacrificed, as it is said. And so, paragraph 9 is saying that all these wonderful things we have been considering about Christ as our perfect mediator, we cannot transfer those to another. The one man is sufficient to mediate for all of his people in all of these ways. And what I want us to go away here with, though, is is not how bad the Roman Catholic Church is. What I want us to go away with is that we have a perfect mediator in heaven. All of our needs that we have as sinners, he meets in these three offices. Do we have any questions or thoughts? I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you. I thank you that our Savior is perfect in every way. That there is no need, 
no weakness, no sin of mine that one of these offices does not totally and effectually meet and bring us to salvation. I, I pray, Christ, that you would more and more today, this Lord's Day, draw people to yourself with your prophetic office, that you would intercede for the saints of Redeemer Covenant Church in your priestly office, that you might use the gospel that is going to be preached by our brother today, our pastor, Joey, to bring many to yourself, that you would convince and persuade them to believe in Christ. I pray that in your kingly office that you would use your, use your authority to rule over us by your word and your spirit, that we might be convinced of our, of our union with you. Lord, I pray you be with us today and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.